Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. Liquidchurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. Well, who in the world needs a savior? Last summer, that was the central question posed by the multi-million dollar blockbuster movie Superman Returns. Now, Superman's been around for some time, and that question has been around for even longer. But we figured that question is as good a place as any to begin our new series, Hollywood Jesus, Glimpses of God on the Silver Screen, in which we're taking a look at God and spiritual faith through the lens of blockbuster films and primetime hits. And just the use of that word savior, it, it suggests something, doesn't it? I mean, that there are people in the world in need of being saved. Yeah, now, now you may not feel that need, you know, this afternoon, you're, you're, that you're in the need of being rescued from anything. In fact, today may be a pretty good day. You got up this morning, it's Easter, maybe you like, you know, OD'd on some candy, hunted eggs, whatever. You had your, you know, double latte mochaccino, and you came here to church with family or friends, and, and, and you're going out for dinner afterwards. Everything seems to be going okay, so the idea of being saved doesn't seem very urgent. Yet instinctively, we love stories about saviors, about flesh and blood heroes who sacrifice their life to save someone they love. If you just take a quick survey of the Oscar winners over the past decade for Best Picture, you'll see the striking centrality of big screen saviors at the center of each one. Any Braveheart fans here, right? Braveheart, yeah. Well, William Wallace, right? William Wallace saves the people of Scotland by literally sacrificing his life. We are going to show the disembowelment scene at the 6.30 service. So you want to stick around for that? Or, or Gladiator, right? Where a slave defied an emperor... And against all odds, save the Republic. Or, this one's for the ladies, who could forget Jack, the courageous young savior of Titanic, right? I'm king of the world. You, know, you remember that one? It's for you ladies when I have too much testosterone in the room. But we love stories with saviors at the center, about a hero who delivers or rescues another from impending danger or death. But that's on the big screen. That's what movies are for, right? They're fantasy. I mean, this is real life. And saviors are harder to come by in real life. For the most part, we actually don't give it much thought day to day. I mean, many of us, you know, we fly in airplanes, and, and while I don't like turbulence, just haven't given much thought about what would happen if a space shuttle rocket booster failed and I came, like, hurling down atop of a baseball stadium. So the relative comfort of our ordinary lives kind of lulls us to sleep. It gives us a sense of security, and the more we feel secure, the more we feel in control, and the more we feel like we can manage our lives. And, and the more we feel that we don't actually really have any need for a Savior, let alone God, in our lives. It's interesting, but as Superman Returns opens, it's been five years since the Man of Steel has visited Earth, and in the meantime, Lois Lane has written a Pulitzer Prize-winning article entitled, Why the World Doesn't Need Superman. And in many ways, that captures the spirit of our modern, jaded, uh, you know, 21st century world, because right now, perched atop the New York Times bestseller list is The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins, the celebrated Oxford biologist. It's a bestseller right now that kind of just rips religion for its intolerance and dramatically hopes our generation will witness the end of faith. In, in Dawkins' view, the end of God and religious belief will be a very good thing. And that's a popular sentiment. On Thursday night, I was watching this special on Anderson Cooper 360. It's called, What It Means to Be a Christian. And he was interviewing a scientist who was pretty antagonistic towards the idea of God and spiritual faith. And he said, I don't need God. I have facts. I have science. I have a brain. We have technology now that was unimaginable five years ago, and we are at the apex of intelligence and sophistication in civilized history. Things are getting better, Anderson, as we make progress, and I don't really need God to make them worse, quite frankly. Popular sentiment. 
especially among educated, successful adults in the Northeast. For the more we gain knowledge and control and see mastery of our everyday lives, the less room there seems to be for God or Savior of any kind. We're better off living everyday life without some like, naive hope for outside help from another world. I mean, who needs rescuing? Who needs God? And that sentiment keeps up until reality crashes in. Or life collapses in some way that confronts us with the undeniable truth that although we may wish it were so, things are actually not getting better as we go on. Life is more fragile than that. Reality is more jarring. The, the, the doctor calls, and actually that, that, that mole you, you, you sent out for biopsy, yeah, it's actually malignant, which is what happened to a friend of mine earlier this month. When you get a phone call like that, it just rattles your perspective. I remember when my family first learned that my dad had cancer. And just that word, all illusions of being in control and able to like steer and direct life or fix and manage problems just, just vanishes. The reality is things are actually breaking down in this world, falling apart. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is when we typically give spiritual faith a second thought. Maybe, maybe there is something to believing in someone bigger than us, someone who's watching over us and actually devoted his very life to rescuing us from the perils of this life. Could it be? Is it a bird? Is it a, a plane? It's, it's God? I want to invite you to take out your scripture and message notes. We placed them on your seats when you walked in today. We got a little light there, Steve. Um, and in our time together, I want to briefly make the case for what reality is telling us and what God himself says in his word about our acute need for a savior. And I want to parallel it with what movies like Superman are illustrating to us about the true nature of spiritual faith. Because there's more going on in some of these stories that resonate with us than meets the eye, just like life. And there's a reason like, why Braveheart or Titanic just kind of stir us. Because while Superman is a fantasy, our need for a savior, for a divine God-man in particular, is quite real. And this film, unlike most others, does an incredible job demonstrating how Jesus Christ, the living Son of God, whose death and resurrection we are celebrating today on Easter, saves us from three things. The effects of living in a broken world, the enemy of our soul, and an eternity apart from God. Now, it's Easter, so everything begins with an E today, okay? This is like my tip of the cap to Easter, all right? If you've got a pen with you, you can kind of follow along on our outline. And, and I don't need to spend much time convincing you that we live in a broken world, do I? I mean, I suppose some of us still live under the illusion that, like, hey, everything is wonderful. But for most of us, we're aware, deep down inside, that things are not as they should be. Like I said, we may find comfort and security in like the rhythms of daily life. We get up, you know, we go to work. Maybe some of us get married, enjoy sex, make money, hopefully love our family, our friends, and are loved by people in return. But sooner or later, reality crashes. And it sobers us up to the fact that we live on a broken planet in which things have gone deeply wrong. This past week, my wife Colleen got a call from one of her college friends, her girlfriends, who was driving cross-country all alone, hadn't spoken in four years, but she calls Colleen out of the blue, and she's just crying and sobbing to the receiver. Colleen goes in the other room. I'm like, what's going on? She goes, it's, it's you know, so-and-so. And, and I'm listening, and, and, and I hear, and, and she called Colleen because she and her husband of seven years are calling it quits. They're getting divorced. Seven years of marriage, two kids, and they're throwing the towel in. Lots of talk about, you know, well, we're different people now, but it doesn't take the sting and the hurt out of it, does it? Some of you know precisely what I'm talking about. There's relational brokenness. Marriages don't always last. Singleness can sometimes seem actually like a curse. Not everybody finds that perfect somebody. Or if you do, and you're lucky enough to have kids, you know, they're just off the wall. Parenthood is not what you were expecting. 
My, my, amen. Yeah, a few people in the morning were like, amen. <laughs> uh, my little boy is just coming down from his Easter candy high yesterday. He like ate a whole box of those yellow peeps, you know, just, and it went through his system like toddler crack. <laughs> Parenthood is not around the clock joy or party. <laughs> or perhaps you wish you were a parent, but you're, but you're struggling with infertility. And at those moments, reality and instinct deep down tell you this is not the way it's supposed to be. It should be easier than this. And you know what? If you think that, you're right. This world, you and I, were made in God's image and designed to enjoy perfection. A perfect world. A perfect relationship with God and each other. But something has gone deeply wrong. And instead of harmony and peace, there's actually discord and destruction. I mean, you just read the headlines of today's paper. I picked up the New York Times this morning, right? War, terrorism, genocide. We've got Iraq. We've got Darfur. Pick your poison. But something's like on wrong in people in this world and everyone knows it. Madness, chaos, death. And we can compartmentalize and say, well, that's the Middle East. It's kind of backwards. But the brokenness of things is on display in our smaller worlds, isn't it? I was just talking with a friend who lost his job earlier this month and he has no idea what he's going to do. Or your company suddenly goes bust and all you thought you were saving up for is suddenly up for grabs. <laughs> so much for certainty. I already mentioned the physical decay and disease that confront many of us in this room. Newsflash, your body is breaking down. Did you know that? Now, now some of you are hiding it better than others. I'll give you that. But it's true. I saw most of you come in, and some of you are losing that youthful glow. You're getting older, weaker, flabbier, right? Now, you know, Pastor Glenn was like, that, dude, that wasn't right to refer to me that way, you know, <laughs> the early service. Now, many of us are getting to the age where we suddenly have furniture problems. You know, our chest drops into our drawers, Right? Even the earth seems to be falling apart or getting worse. Tsunamis, Katrina, famine, natural disasters randomly strike and wreak havoc in global suffering. It's like, what is going on here? Actually, exactly what the Bible says has been going on since the beginning of time. At some point in life, each of us experiences the effects of living in a broken world. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been, let's say this word together, groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves groan inwardly as we wait. You can underline or circle that word groaning and the idea is that the whole world from the earth to individuals is in a perpetual state of things are just not going the way they're supposed to. We instinctively know this. It's like I I finally find the perfect man and he's already married. My, my wife and I want to make it work. And, oh, why is it so hard? Or I finally find a job I like and it has, finally has meaning and purpose and oh, now they're downsizing. Come on, groaning. Paul compares it to the pains of childbirth. <laughs> I remember when Colin gave birth to our little girl, Chase. Man, that was some oh, straining and pushing and Paul says that's the reality of life. Our world's broken. And consequently, life on this planet is often messy and painful. So spiritual truth today is that actually everyone is hurting. It's what reality tells us when we're honest. And it's what God's word describes as the actual state of things. And it's at that point we wonder, well, does he care? That's one of the reasons we question God. Like when he looks down and sees the pain, hurt, and frustration, and strife, why doesn't he do anything? How how do you think God feels when he looks down on our current world? On your life? I want to show you a clip from Superman Returns that I think just beautifully illustrates how God does feel as he considers his creation below. 
In this scene, Superman hovers over this broken planet and he listens in on all of the cries and the cacophony of, of chaos that, that go across our planet. And I want you to listen to the voiceover of Superman's father. A loving father speaking to his son and telling him what he's decided to do about it. Even though you've been raised as a human being, you are not one of them. They can be a great people, Kal-El, they wish to be. They only lack the light to show the way. For this reason, above all, their capacity for good, I have sent them you, my only son. That his heart is actually aroused. As any father's heart is aroused when he sees his children suffering. And there's a word for that. It's called compassion. When you feel deep sympathy for someone who's suffering, but it's met by an equally strong desire to do something about it. The original creators of Superman were onto something. Back in 1932, two young Jewish guys, Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster, introduced a comic book character named Kal L to the American public. And we know him today by his more popular name, Superman, or by his secret identity, Clark Kent. But Siegel and Schuster first introduced Superman with his Kryptonian name, and you heard it in the voiceover, Chael, which resembles the Hebrew words Chael. And interestingly enough, El is the Hebrew word for God, as in Elohim, meant to express the concept of divinity. And put together, Kal-El literally translates into vessel of God. That's literally what Superman's name means. <laughs> Interesting. So it's like, let's get the backstory to Superman straight, okay? Out beyond this, this earth, in the heavens, is a benevolent father. And as he looks down through the heavens and sees our troubled planet below, he is so moved by the plight of his creatures that he decides to do the unthinkable. He sends my son, my one and only son, Chael, the vessel of God, to be mankind's savior. Sound familiar? It should, whether you're a fan of Smallville or a reader of the Bible. They can be a great people if they wish to be, Chael. They only lack the light, capital L, to show the way. For this reason, I've sent them you, my only son. So goes the movie. But the Bible tells us that in the same way, when God looked down and surveyed all the pain and hurt that life on a broken planet brings, he didn't just weep. The Bible tells us he was aroused with compassion to come alongside those who are lost and hurting. That's precisely what he did when he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to this earth 2,000 years ago. In the fourth chapter of his first epistle, the apostle John wrote these words, and we have seen and we testify that the father has sent his son, Jesus, to be the savior of the world. And when we consider Jesus coming to this planet, we learn something about God's heart. We have a God who cares who surveyed all the brokenness and the hurts in your life and determined to actually do something about it. 
once and for all. Not just stand by as a remote, distant, detached deity. That's what some people think God is like. But in sending his son, Jesus Christ, took on flesh to be with us. That's actually the Hebrew name given to Jesus at his birth. Not Chael, but Emmanuel. God with us. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. The incarnation, when God actually broke into human space and time and came in the flesh and we realized we are the visited planet. <laughs> Just as Kalel was sent to earthly parents from a heavenly father to alleviate the world's suffering, Jesus was and is the vessel sent by our heavenly father to this world to be our savior in the 21st century, in the flesh. And that's literally what the gospels testify to. That's what John's talking about. That God actually stepped out of the heavens and into human history 2,000 years ago in the person of his son. Jesus was more than a teacher, more than a good man, much more than a superhero. God in the flesh. That's incarnation, incarne. What's carne? Spanish, right? Flesh, meat. God with skin on. And this is one of the great distinctives of the Christian faith. I'll highlight a few of them for you today, but no other religion dares to make the claim that their great God has personally come near in the form of humanity. Because it is a plan of heroic proportions. I mean, Romans 8.3 puts it this way. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son. He didn't deal with the problem as something remote and unimportant, but in his son Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. And th- think of what this decision cost God. Giving up his place in the heavens, instead rolling up his sleeves to get down the dirt and the madness and the chaos and become like us so that we could become like him. And this is what the incarnation of Jesus Christ means, that God came to this world in his son Jesus, who was at once fully divine, like he created the universe, and at the same time fully human, voluntarily subject to all the hurts and abuses of life that you are. That's what the Bible tells us about Jesus' divinity. It says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, All things were created by him and for him. He's before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, according to the Bible, Jesus is not only equal to God, he is God. He spoke and galaxies whirled into place. Stars burned in the heavens and planets began orbiting the sun. Awesome, unleashed power. It has the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact representation of He doesn't just reflect God, he reveals God to us. So when we see Jesus, we see what God is like. In other words, when you go through the Bible and you read eyewitness testimony in the Gospels of Jesus healing a man born blind, restoring his sight, or helping a woman who had a bleeding problem, you see God's power on display. He can and will restore creation. And when we see Jesus stooping to to touch the body of a leper or minister to the poor and marginalized and hurting our world, we see God's heart on display. So on the one hand, you have divinity, and yet on the other hand, Jesus was fully human. During his 33 years on earth, subject to every weakness and limitation and and, and humiliation that we are, he knew what it was like to to lose a loved one, to be betrayed by a friend. Imagine that. The mighty creator became a part of his creation, limited by time and space, and susceptible to aging, sickness, and death. In many ways, like Superman, right? On the one hand, he is super... Divine, endowed with supernatural abilities. And yet he's also man. With weaknesses common to all of us. A humble, mild-mannered reporter or carpenter. (laughs) At once divine, stops speeding bullets, and fully human. Subject to the same weaknesses and temptations that all we are. And this is what God's word tells us the truth about Jesus. Through Jesus we learn that our Savior doesn't just care. He personally identifies with every struggle we face. 
Hebrews 4.15 puts it this way. We don't have a high priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's, he's been through weakness and testing, experienced it all, all but the sin. You understand the significance of that statement? That there is nothing you're going through today with which Christ can't relate. During his 33 years on this planet, again, ex- experienced everything. Suffering from the heights of popularity to being a pariah. He was, Jesus was born into straw poverty. Never had a dime, not a home. Was accused unjustly. The victim of corrupted justice. If you're going through justice, legal entanglements, and say there's no justice in this world. Yeah, Jesus says, yeah, I know. Nothing that you're going through, divorce, disease, depression, with which Jesus can't identify. But there's only one difference. And it's what makes the Savior unique. For although Jesus took on human suffering through it all, he did not take on human sin. Hurt and pierced and troubled for sure, here, but never once did Jesus mistrust his Father and forsake his mission to serve others. That's, that's what sin is. I mean, that's a fancy kind of religious term. But that anti-God urge when we kind of snub our nose at God and decide to go our own way, in other words, when the hurts of life tell us, you know what, God doesn't care, and we believe it. <laughs> in a response, we say, you know what, I don't care about God. <laughs> we begin not caring about others. Love dries up. So does life. Sin takes root. Brokenness, our world, as well as you and me. The Bible teaches that all creation is bent and twisted, including humanity. And, and you know what, that's not meant to make us feel bad. It's just the truth of our nature. Just as something's gone deep, really wrong inside the world around us, something's been bent or twisted inside us as well. As much as we want to escape the hurt and pain of a broken world, in many ways, we actually contribute to it. We are all sinners in need of a perfect Savior. And Jesus was the only sinless one. Both human and divine, experiencing a broken world and never breaking trust with his Father, but remaining faithful to his commands. That stunning duality... That Superman, Clark Kent, human divine truth. That's at the core of the Christian faith. If you're checking out Christianity for the first time, it's at the core of it. And you don't even have to be religious to notice it. Secular commentators have, have been like, this is, a, this, this is an amazing thing. Last summer, when Superman Returns first hit theaters, Richard Corliss, writing for Time magazine, he made this observation. He said, earlier versions of Superman stressed the hero's humanity, his attachment to his earth parents, his country boy clumsiness around Lois. The singer version emphasizes his divinity. He is not Superman. He is a God named Chael, sent by his heavenly Father to protect earth. And that is a mission that takes more than muscle. It requires sacrifice, perhaps of his own life. So he's no simple comic book hunk. He is earth's savior, Jesus Christ, Superman. But, but what was God's plan in sending Jesus to be our savior? I mean, like, it's like, okay, saving us from what? Who or what exactly was Jesus sent to save us from? I mean, yes, all right, we're sinners, we're broken people, need saving from ourselves. But that's only half the story, isn't it? I mean, what's a story without a villain? <laughs> every gladiator has his commodus, every brave heart his long shanks, and Superman has his, what's his name? Lex Luthor, and just that name should ring a bell too, doesn't it? Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor, Lex Luthor, Lucifer, what? The Savior's arch nemesis, played deviantly by Kevin Spacey last summer, the balding, prideful megalomaniac bent on one thing, the destruction of the people that God deeply loves. I mean, let me ask parents here. You can tell us. If, if someone was your arch enemy and they really want to nail you, strike deeply at your heart, how would they get to you? Yeah. You go after his children. And what is your name? I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. Cute kid, and smart. 
Thanks. But we're not really strangers, are we? I mean, this is kind of a little reunion, isn't it? Heck, I'm a fan. I love your writing. And your dress. I love your boat. How'd you get it? Swindle some old widow out of her money? <laughs> Hey, didn't you win the Pulitzer Prize for my favorite article of all time, Why the World Doesn't Need Superman? But millions of people will die. Billions! Once again, the press underestimates me. This is front page news. Come on, let me hear you say it just once. Come on. You're insane. No! <laughs> no, what's the other thing? Come on, I know it's just dangling out the tip of your tongue. Let me hear it just once, please. Superman will never. What is that? I think you know exactly what this is. Mind over muscle, Miss Lane. Mind. Who is that boy's father? Don't let them leave this room. To deny the reality of the brokenness of life, we deny something else. That there is no enemy of our soul. As we, as we grow up, we consign the idea of like evil incarnate to the silver screen and say, you know what, that's fantasy too. And yet God's word tells us a different story. 1 John 5.19 bluntly declares, We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Not a lot of ambiguity in that statement, is there? Now, now stick with me, skeptics, because I know some of you are like, you know, I've come back to church on Easter, I'm checking out with this faith thing, and I was tracking with you, but here's where you Christians get wacky. Here comes that whole devil thing, right? Next thing you know, out come the snakes, I'm out of here. So just step with you. Okay, I understand. All right, this may be a stretch for some of you still working out this God thing. The only thing less popular than believing a Savior exists is that the devil or Satan or Lucifer exists as a created being. First off, it's kind of creepy. Second, popular you know, depictions are kind of childish, you know, like red horns, pitchfork, and stuff. It's like, who can believe in this? Let me invite you to step over that objection a minute, and let's make this live, okay? Think back to your past week. I want you to rummage through your memory banks and think of any ways that you've experienced the brokenness that we've been talking about. Could, could be a conflict at home or school or work, a situation that just made you, oh, groan this week or got you, like, torqued, okay? And I know you could just talk, you know, chalk that up to chance or everyday life, but is it just possible... That whether you consciously realize it or not, there's more going on in your life than you're aware of on a spiritual level. I'll give you a live example that happened to me and my wife, Colleen. As, as you can imagine, with the launch of our church, we've been under a lot of stress, pressure. But through it all, like, Colleen's been my backbone. I'm kind of spineless, but she is like a rock. <laughs> Extremely understanding. And, you know, we pulled some all-nighters, had to work weekends. And she's been, like, so gracious and generous. She's like, honey, I understand it's a stressful time. I'm here for you. Just don't, don't even worry about me and the kids. She's like, I'll take care of things at home. You lead the church. You get through the launch. I, I won't even be upset if I get the short end of the stick for a couple months. After that, you've got a problem. But don't worry about me. <laughs> 
And she's meant that. She's just been more supportive and understanding as a wife than I deserve. And so that's the context. So check this out. A while back, this one night, I'd been like working all day and I was late getting home. Okay, I left 20 minutes later than I promised Colleen. And that is a continual sore spot for us. Okay, nothing new there. It is my Achilles heel being on time. And we've kind of sparred on that before. So I'm late, 20 minutes late, and I'm kind of feeling bad. And, and I'm driving up past the Somerville Circle. And, and I decide at that moment, I'm going to make a dicey situation even better. Because on my left, I see Wegmans. And it's dinner time. You know what Wegmans is? That gourmet grocery store. You don't even buy stuff. You just go in and eat. It's just it's amazing. And I'm hungry and I think, you know what? I'm going to fix this. I'm going to make this better. I'm going to surprise Colleen. Spontaneous dinner date. And so, I, so I'm, I'm like, maybe that will like kind of distract from you know, being tired. So I go in and I go into the seafood section. They have these huge, succulent Alaskan king crab legs. Like massive. They were like mutant spiders. Like, whoa. I get these things. I'm like, we're going to cook them up. I get a pumpkin pie for good measure. And our kids were going to be at their grandparents. And I'm thinking like, hey, Mr. Romantic to the rescue. So I go and gather all this stuff. And I even get scented candles. So you know I'm serious. Like maybe this will help assuage my tardiness. And it sets me back, of course, another half hour. So now I'm like 15 minutes late, and I get in the car, and I, you've tried it, man. You guys know this. When I go, hey, sweetheart, what's going on? How you doing? Hey, never guess what I'm bringing home. Where are you? <laughs> nope, guess again. <laughs> Quiet. Are you leaving now? Look, look, I got a surprise, and just dead silence. And I can tell from her response this ain't working. And at that moment, sitting in traffic on Route 287, it's like, oh, like this flood of hot shame and frustration comes in. Like, why am I always getting grief? So I, I, I just, I just, I say, I go, look, just put a pot on the stove and boil some water, okay? More silence. And then, okay, click. And I don't know if she turned on the pot or not, but I started boiling. <laughs> And I'm sitting there in traffic on 287. Suddenly there's this voice in the car. It's not audible, but, but these whispers start in my head. You know, she never appreciates you. And I am like, you got that right. <laughs> she is always on your back. And I'm like, that's the truth. I work all day round the clock, go the extra mile to make things nice for her. And then I say, literally, I say out loud, I'm like, that I'm grateful. Wham. And I punch the horn with my fist. And the driver's around. I'm like, whoa. Now, I'm not a violent guy, okay? Just chill. But, but I was steamed. And all of a sudden, these crazy thoughts start flooding my brain. You know, you deserve somebody who appreciates all that you do. And I'm like, straight up. <laughs> well, you know, there are plenty of other women who would love to have a man as thoughtful and as loving as you. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> and my mind starts thinking about all the spam I got, you know, the emails about those, you know, Eskimo women in Alaska who are all hot to trot. And I'm like, they're out there. <laughs> and you know what? By that point, I was ready to like pull over and throw those whole king crab legs and the pumpkin pie out of the car over the median. All this in a span of four minutes. From romance for the woman who sacrificed her life for me to spite. I actually thought about pulling over and going to Wendy's, just a tweaker. But the crab cost too much. So I went home. I go, I go in. I slam the door. She's, you know, in the kitchen at the sink with her back to me. And I'm like, another insult. And I start, you know, opening stuff. I'm like, throw the candles in the garbage. I'm rattling around. So I'm like, forget it. She can eat alone. I go down the hall to our bathroom. I put my face in water. And I look, look in the mirror. And I'm just like, oh, God, what in the world is going on here? And we've been married 10 years now. So I'm seasoned enough to know that marriages are won and lost on moments like these. So I go back down the hall into the kitchen. I'm like, Lord, can you just help me? What, what am I I go in. I take her arm. And I was like, can you just sit down? And, and, we, and she comes over and she sits down. And I'm like, I'm like what, what, what just happened here? 
I'm like, I feel like, I feel like, I feel like something like just got, he's getting in between us here. In fact, I'm, I'm like still mad at you and I don't even know why. And she's like, uh, yeah, I'm mad at you too. <laughs> and I'm like, so what do you want to do about it? And she's like, well, we could pray for starters. And I'm like, oh, unfair, I'm the pastor. You can't make me say that. <laughs> you know, it's a trump card. What do you say? Man, that was hard. But you know what? We did it. We actually took each other's hands, even though we were steamed with each other. And we said, we're just like, God, would you? We need help here. We can agree on that. Would you please bring your light and your truth and your peace into our home? Whatever's just like at work here, we feel under attack. Lord, this is just and confused, and we just ask for your help. And you know what happened? We prayed for like seven, seven, ten minutes, and in that span, it was literally like this cloud lifted. And my attitude changed, and, and, and I opened my eyes, and I could see in Colleen's eyes, it kind of softened, and, and she just reached out and hugged me, and I just started crying. And I'm like, I, I am so sorry, sweet. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry too, hon. And, and our hearts started to thaw, and I just literally sat there dumbfounded, like, what just happened? How did this woman who'd been so understanding day after day after day after day, how in a span of no more than 10 minutes did I somehow come to see her as my mortal enemy? Now, I mean, chalk this up to a misunderstanding, but something weird was going on. And as I reflected back on that night, I asked the question, is it possible, just possible, that that wasn't just me and my wife having a bad day, that there actually is an enemy actively at work trying to sow untruth into our lives about one another so he can divide us to sow distrust and discord into our relationship. This is actually the spiritual reality that the Bible reveals. In John 10.10, Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. In other words, everything good in your life, think about everything good in your life is in the crosshairs of the evil one. Your relationships, your work, your happiness, your job, our church, anything good and loving and godly and precious is under attack by the enemy of our souls. That's the reality of the Christian life. Uh, C.S. Lewis famously said, he says, enemy occupied territory, that's what this world is. And that's one of the levels where the war is waged, at the level of relationships. Why would the devil or Lucifer, the evil one, whatever you call him, target Colleen and me to try to undermine our marriage? Well, for one, because God designed marriage to be a stunning picture of the selfless and unconditional love that Christ has for his people. And what better way to give a black eye to the kingdom or to make love disappear than to get two people, spouses, committed to one another, circling each other like animals in a cage. And that's the idea. Steal, kill, destroy. In his epistle, Peter says this. He says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I'm not trying to get off the hook here, folks. I have no doubt, you know... (laughs) Physical exhaustion, you know, my temper, stress, all contribute to my sin against my wife. I have to take responsibility for it. But is it just possible that there's an enemy warring against our souls on a daily basis as the Bible suggests? And that he's actually a bit more active than we typically give him credit for? (laughs) Jesus actually called him, gave him this title, Father of Lies. And the idea is that our enemy is constantly trying to get us to make agreements with untruths about God, ourselves, and others. And as I review that conflict in my head, I think of all the lies I chose to believe about Colleen. I was like, she doesn't understand. Yes, it's so true. She's always like this. Yes. Who needs her? You got it. Stick up for yourself. Don't trust her. Yes. And that's the level at which spiritual reality is lived, whether you're aware of it or not. At which the battle is fought and won. Let me ask you, what relationships in your life are under siege right now? Maybe it's your marriage, you know, and you're harboring all sorts of lies and accusations against your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend, whatever, or or with a close friend or colleague, and now you're harboring a grudge and thinking of bailing. Let me ask you, is it just possible 
You've been the victim of the enemy's schemes. The spiritual reality is that everyone in this room is hunted. Whether you acknowledge it or not, or, or, and maybe you're not there yet, by the way. Maybe you're like, what? That's totally cool. Is it just possible, though, that the people you've identified as your enemies or the source of your frustration aren't the real problem? Ephesians 6.12 tells us your struggle is not against flesh and blood. Wake up. But against the rulers, the authorities, and the powers of this dark world, and the spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. See, our enemy loves it when we deny spiritual reality and pretend he doesn't exist. Why? Well, what happens when we ignore it and say that there's an enemy of our souls? Guess who we blame? One another. The enemy is him, Bob, or her, you know, Jane. Or we, 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 we do that in relationships, in business, in politics, even in church, right? Polarized positions. Like, how do, how do you complete this sentence? Well, everything would be fine at my work if it weren't for fill in the blank right now. No, don't call out loud, please. So, somebody at the first service is like, oh, this is not the rhetorical, you know. <laughs> or, or this church would be great if fill in the blank would just leave. Or this country would be headed in the right direction if it weren't for fill in the appropriate political entity, you know, depending if you're a Democrat, Republican. You know what they say? You can be sure that you've created God in your own image when he hates all the same people you do. Some pretty depressing news on Easter, yes? Everyone's hurting, our world's broken, and everyone is hunted. Reason number two, we need a savior. And if we end here, there's no good news. There's no Easter hope. And fortunately for this reason, Jesus came to repair this broken world and defeat the enemy of our souls once and for all. And that could only happen in a showdown, a climactic encounter between a God committed to redeeming his creation and the one hell-bent on destroying it. And that's what literally happened on Good Friday 2,000 years ago, what we celebrated on Friday, when the Son of God had a final face-to-face encounter with our enemy and all the forces of spiritual darkness in our broken world. And I wish I could tell you that it went smoothly for the Savior, but Good Friday is the thing that makes Easter possible. Anything familiar? I see an old man sick joke. Really? Because I see my new apartment. And a place for Kitty, one for my friends, and that place over there I'll rent out. But you know, maybe you're right. You know, maybe it is a little... Cold. It's uh, uh, what's the word I'm searching for? It's a little alien. It lacks that human touch. You have something that belongs to me. Tonight. 
You're asking yourself, didn't your dad ever teach you to look before you leave? Crystals, they're amazing, aren't they? They inherit the traits of the minerals around them. Kind of like a son inheriting the traits of his father. You took away five years of my life. I'm just returning the favor! And they kicked him, and the crowd spat upon him. And the soldiers stripped Jesus, and taking nails, nailed him to a cross between two thieves. And they drove a spear through his side. And that's how it went for Jesus on the day he faced the powers of hell head on. You name the story, and the turning point is a dark moment when all seems lost. 
Wallace is disemboweled by Longshanks. And in our story, the story of our salvation, we're told that the Son of God was sacrificed on our behalf. It was a good Friday for us, that's what we call it. But it was a bad Friday for God. And that is the high cost of our salvation. That when Jesus came to this earth 2,000 years ago and was crucified on a tree in our place, he didn't just experience the effects of living in a broken world. He personally absorbed the worst the world has to offer. Isaiah 53, 5 describes Jesus' death this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Mocked, rejected, betrayed, tortured, beaten, spit upon, crucified, murdered. And in our sin-struck madness, the Bible tells us we cheered as our enemy killed our Savior. But this, he laid down his life anyway. See, a heroic sacrifice is at the heart of every salvation story. And in accordance with his father's ultimate plan, Jesus made the decision to absorb our abuse and rejection in order to gain our freedom and our healing. Because by his wounds, we are healed. By the sacrifice for our sins, we are saved. See, God is in the business of putting broken lives back together. But the cost is the shattering of his own. And when I think about that, that image of father sending his one and only son to sacrifice himself, I can tell you as a father, nothing is more gut-wrenching as a parent. It's like, why would God do this? Is it, is it just possible? Because he loves you, his lost child, as much as he does his son Jesus. That's the answer 1 John gives us. This is how God showed his love for us. God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. This is the kind of love we are talking about. Not that we once upon a time loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to clear away our sins and the damage they've done to our relationship with God. Love. God is love. We're not talking about a wispy, sentimental, kind of like mawkish romance, but a a hard-nosed and courageous and selfless love that's an action. It considers the steep cost of saving his cherished children and yet voluntarily lays down its life anyway. Folks, this is the deepest truth I can proclaim to you on Easter today. You have been loved. Extravagantly. You have been fought for by a father who cares for you as one of his children. And you can be saved from your brokenness through his son's sacrifice on your behalf. See, at the end of the day, Superman in the Gospels, it's a love story. I know you can see it, you know, you find it filed under action and adventure at Blockbuster, but they're wrong. (laughs) At the heart of the story is a love relationship. And in the movie, it's between Clark Kent and Lois Lane, but in real life, it's between Jesus Christ and the object of his love, you and me. And the deepest reality of this world, in your life, whether you choose to believe this or not, is that Jesus died for you. That his sacrifice is stunning evidence of the lengths that God would go through to restore and repair your relationship with him. No matter what you've done or where you're at, God understands. He sees your hurt, your frustrations, your, your groans, and he feels for you. And he wants to help you. And that's why he personally came in the form of Jesus to be with you so you don't have to make your way through this broken world alone anymore. And the reason you can put your confidence in that truth is that Jesus, unlike every other God of every world religion, lived to tell about it. 
See, after the tragedy of Good Friday, thank God there was a sequel on Sunday. Amen? (laughs) The title of the movie, after all, is Superman Returns. (laughs) And that's a fortunate thing, because if Good Friday was not followed by today, Easter, we'd have a little bit of inspiration, but not much hope. (laughs) I mean, if Superman stays at the bottom of the ocean, you know, Lois Lane may be, like, temporarily saved, but Luther wins. And if Jesus Christ, after he was crucified and buried on Good Friday, stayed buried in that tomb, then our enemy wins, and we are stuck without hope for all eternity. Because you know what? Everybody spends forever somewhere. (laughs) And if God wasn't more powerful than death, then we die too, spiritually. All we'd have to look forward to is an eternity apart from the God who loves us. Well, thank God for Easter. The reason we're celebrating here today is Resurrection Sunday. The day of the great reversal, the part of the story that changed our future forever. I want to end our time with a final clip that reveals the hope that is at the core of the Christian faith. As you know, um, the Gospels actually record how religious authorities put a a, a rock in front of Jesus' tomb. And they posted guards all around the grave to make sure it stayed shut that way. But on the third day, scriptures record something unprecedented happened. God made a comeback. Lex, are billions of people really going to die? Yes.
Early the next morning, the disciples ran to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled away. Where have you put our Savior, they asked. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen, just as he said he would. After God was buried on Good Friday, Jesus' disciples likely spent the weekend thinking, some Savior. A good man for sure, but God, not so much. I mean, if death is more powerful than Jesus, he's not the all-powerful creator, is he? They thought they'd seen the end of the movie. Little did they know there would be a sequel three days later. And this is at the central part of our faith, our hope as followers of Jesus Christ, my friends. The single thing that distinguishes Christianity from every single world religion is that we have a God who took the worst that the world has to offer, sin, suffering, and death, and lived to tell about it. (laughs) Amen? On Easter... And Jesus' triumph over the grave, he personally conquered the enemy of our souls. Romans 6 puts it this way, what we believe is this, if we get included in Christ's sin-conquering death, we also get included in his life-saving resurrection. We know that when Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the signal of the, e- of the end of death of, as the end. Never again will death have the last word. When Jesus died, he took sin down with him, but alive, he brings God down to us. The ultimate gift, the ultimate hope, the ultimate promise that all who put their trust in Jesus Christ will be saved. Eternal life with God the Father and his son Jesus. A new spirit-filled life, actually, that starts now and continues on into eternity. Folks, the reason we love these stories is that they're telling us something true about ourselves that we're often unwilling to admit, and that is we can't save ourselves. We are broken people living on a broken planet, hunted and harassed by an enemy much greater than us, and that's why the world needs a superman, a super God-man, and that's why God sent Jesus Christ. No matter what we do, whether good deeds or bad, none of us can save ourselves. Salvation has nothing to do with being a good person or doing good works. Nice people go to hell. (laughs) Jesus came to save broken people who can admit their need for a savior. Salvation is all his work. And all we have to do is put our trust in what Jesus did on our behalf. Say, this is not a movie. This is not a myth. This is my life. This is true. The world is broken, I am broken, and I need a savior. And that's what's necessary to be saved. An honest confession to God of our flaws an admission we can't do it on our own, and that we trust him to do it for us. The writer of Hebrews sums it up. He says, everyone has to die once, then face the consequences. Christ's death was also a one-time event, but it was sacrifice that took care of sins forever. And so, when he next appears, the outcome for those eager to meet him is precisely salvation. An eternity in the company of God the Father and his most excellent son, Jesus. A secure and unending relationship with the source of all goodness, of love, of life itself. And that is true hope, folks. The hope of resurrection. That what God did in raising Jesus from the dead will happen to you as well. Uh, Sure, you you remain subject to the effects of, of life in a broken world. But you now have one thing that can't ever be taken again. The promise of new life. An eternal kind of life. That's hope, my friends. And it changes everything. I mean, let me ask you, what would it be like to, to, to live knowing you are fully forgiven and that your God has declared ultimate victory over sin and death, that those sickness, you know, disease and disappointment may still touch your life, it's not the final word. 
See, when we put our trust in Jesus, life doesn't all of a sudden get better. All our problems like, don't magically disappear. In fact, just the opposite. Sometimes the enemy gets more aggressive if we step out to live godly lives in the service of Jesus and others. But we have a special resource at our disposal. We're told that the Spirit of Jesus is actually poured into our life at the moment of salvation. You get it? Part of the reality of Christ's resurrection is that Jesus doesn't take us out of a broken world. Instead, he gives us strength and peace to live triumphantly in the midst of brokenness and suffering. And actually empowers us to be agents of his love and healing in the lives of those around us. That's the hope. The hope of eternal life. Intimately connected to Jesus now in this life as well and in the one to come. It's hope at every level. Think of your past, your present, your future. Hope for the past, like everything, all your past flaws and sins, gone and forgiven. Hope for the present, it's like, wait, I have a new kind of power for living, the kind that Colleen and I experienced, because greater is he who's in us than he who is in the world. (laughs) Whoa. And hope for the future. This is not all there is. Death does not have the final say. You die tonight, it's the start of things. There's more. 1 Corinthians 15 promises, if Christ wasn't raised, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. And if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. That's the promise of Easter. That God stepped into history, declared his love, forgave your sins, and secured your eternal place in his family forever. Folks, I don't know what struggles or hurts you're facing in your life. I don't know what you came in with today or what kind of challenges you'll face when you leave. But this is a word of hope directly from God to you. You are not alone. this, This is not all there is to life. There's a father who loves you. A God who's fought for you and a Savior waiting for you to put your trust in Him. Do you believe that? Have you accepted that as as truth? Not as fantasy, but the deepest truth of reality? Have you been, again, dare I use the word, saved? Because a Savior has come for you. And if you want to be saved, (laughs) have rock solid, beyond shadow of doubt confidence, you have eternal life. All you have to do is invite Him into yours. It's Easter of all days. What better moment to stick a stake in the ground and ask Jesus to be your personal Savior than Easter, the day we celebrate new life.